Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics with me, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain, the podcast which looks at geopolitics in historical context. And today it gives us both great pleasure to be welcoming to our podcast, Raf Pantucci, a colleague and friend from uh, RUSI. He's a senior associate fellow at RUSI. Now, since I've discovered, disappeared off to uh, fairer climes in Singapore, it turns out. So we're very grateful for him coming at, uh, uh, at a particularly late hour for him, not so late for us, but a particularly late hour for him. And he's coming to talk about today, our subject will be on Kazakhstan, which has been in the headlines uh, of late, and to explain and illuminate what's been going on there. And he's just got a book coming out in a few months called Sinistan, China's Inadvertent Empire, which uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about as well during the podcast. And Raf, we're delighted to have you here. You and I were following by WhatsApp the events in Kazakhstan at the beginning of this year, where it appeared that some protests got quite quickly quite out of control and were then suppressed quite brutally. And Kazakhstan feels from a UK perspective quite far away, but it is, of course, a large country on the southern border of Russia and sandwiched between Russia and China. So what happens there has all sorts of indicators for what's going on, essentially, between Russia and China, um, but also for us at the moment, sitting in Europe, worrying about what's happening in Ukraine with, with Russian concerns about its border how that all plays out on the southern border with Kazakhstan is also interesting and, and offers us a new way of looking, I think, at what's going on in Ukraine. So we're very grateful that you're here to explain it to us. Could we start by your talking through the events in those very small number of days in January where things just came completely off the rails? Thank you first both for the kind invitation to join you. It's a real pleasure to see you both or hear you both remotely like this, even down the line and uh, and talking about such a fun and fascinating subject too. I think, you know, the events in Kazakhstan that we saw earlier this year basically seem to have been triggered by a hike in fuel prices um, that took place around uh, the end of the year. And this was something the government had been thinking about doing for some time because fuel prices there were kept artificially low. And the problem was that they were seeing a certain level of potential black market trading. And also the government was having to subsidize this to a considerable amount. And so they decided to change this. They changed this and this suddenly led to a hike in fuel prices. A hike in fuel prices that went down very badly. At a moment, frankly, when you know, the country in general has not been doing fantastically well. I mean, Kazakhstan you know, is a country you know, to place it for the audience. I mean, Suzanne, you said it's between Russia and China, so we've got it there. But geographically speaking, you're talking about a country that's roughly the size of Western Europe. has a population of about 20 million people scattered all over it. And it's got huge mineral wealth. And this mineral wealth has meant there is a certain volume of wealth in this country, but it's accumulated amongst a very small group of people. And the overwhelming majority of the country don't always feel that they're getting the same benefits. And if you leave the sort of capital cities, or you leave the capital city Nur Sultan, or you leave the other, what was originally the capital city, Almaty, um, and you go to some of the other cities, you find some poverty and people that don't feel like they're getting these benefits. And so, you know, you have this inequality in the country already. On top of that, COVID has not been very kind to Kazakhstan in some ways. You know, there's been a drop in trading going back and forth. So, you know, trade in oil and gas didn't really stop, you know, minerals, those still exportable, that sort of trade continued. But at a lower level, you did see trade go down considerably. And you saw people suffer and you saw the economy contract, in particular, as the economies next door to it contracted as well. And so you basically had a situation where you've had a kind of a long term problem of inequality, 
you've had a certain degree of economic stagnation over the past few years, and suddenly you get a price fuel hike. And so this impacts people's daily lives, you know, in the middle of winter as well. And by the way, this is the, the step. It's pretty cold. And, you know, and so they need fuel and it's, you know, it's a, it really cuts us out. And so this led to a whole series of protests that we saw at the beginning of the year, which started first in cities where, frankly, we've seen protests in the past and wasn't entirely surprising, but spread incredibly quickly around the entire country. And initially, it seemed like these were quite organic. People were taking to the streets, angry. And then very quickly, it seemed to escalate. And this is the part where we're not entirely clear what happened and we're still trying to piece it together. But it seems what started as an organic protest then developed into a power struggle between different factions. And where we ended up was essentially one faction, which is led by the current president, President Tokayev, essentially seems to have ousted the remnants of the last faction who was in charge, which was those around founding president, President Nazarbayev. And that kind of, I think, brings us to where we are today. Of course, there's lots of other details in the between, but I, th I think we'll get to those as we go along. But essentially, we seem to have a kind of an organic protest, which seems to have been hijacked by something else, which seems to have been an internal power struggle, which seems to have resulted in a distinct shift in kind of power in, in Kazakhstan. Can I interrupt? Before we get on to the protests, which are obviously really exciting and the main reason we're talking, I want to inject some Kazakh facts because some of the things you referred to, Ralph, are really important to those who don't know the country so well to help us understand why it's so peculiar. So the population density in Kazakhstan is seven people per square kilometre, because you have, as you said, a population of 19 million, and the, the size of the country is three million square kilometres. So that's seven per square kilometre. If you contrast it with the UK, the population density in the UK is 281 people per square kilometre, because our total land area is about 240 kilometres squared and our population is 68 million. And the US population density is 36 per square kilometre. So it's incredibly sparsely populated. And as you said, large areas, it's so topographically, you have some very high mountains in, in the Tian Shen in, in the southeast and deserts and steppes. Isn't the population also concentrated in very particular parts of the yes. country? Is that right? It is right. And I was just going on to, to talk a little bit about that. The climate is um, it, it's completely landlocked apart from the Caspian Sea. And the climate can be very hot in the summer, about 30 degrees, and very cold in the winter, down to minus 20. And in fact, I remember driving across Kazakhstan in January. The wind blows in a circular way, I yeah. think, around. So you get these kind of swirls of very high winds with snow in them. So it's kind of a harsh place. And that landlocked nature is also something that determines the character there. That's my injection of Kazakh fact. I mean, it's extraordinarily flat is the other thing. And if you go from Almaty, which is the sort of the old capital, which is right down near the border with China, to Nur Sultan, which is what used to be called Astana, which um, had a different name before that as well, which is the capital city, which is kind of in the middle of the country. If you fly from one to the other, it's extraordinary because you look out the plane and it's just totally flat. <laughs> and it's hard to describe a, a horizon where it's just completely flat as far as the eye can see with no sort of topographical things. And so it means, as, as you point out, so it's just incredibly windy across this. And if you go to North Sultan, which is a modern, a new city, you know, a sort of a, a city which is built out of the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's got an old city, but most of it is these sort of very new thing with these big boulevards. They're essentially wind tunnels. <laughs> and so if you go there in the colder parts of the year, it's miserable. 
Because if you go outside, you're just getting swept along these giant wind corridors in the middle of the capital city, which means you spend all of your time indoors enjoying the lovely vodka and, you know, coarse meat that they serve. Okay, so that's uh, finished our first Kazakh fact injection. Let's go not back sure, now. Not sure how to follow on from that culinary suggestion that Raf was just pointing <laughs> it's, it's out. It's really delicious. I would highly recommend it. I, I really would. <laughs> so it's the 2nd of January, Raf. Um, mm. We have spontaneous protests, apparently, breaking out in the west of the country in response to the price hike in LNG. Mm-hmm. And then it suddenly becomes very violent down in Almaty, it's the other side of the country. Talk us through what then happens. And I'm just thinking that before you do that, you're going to need to introduce the main characters in this so that people can follow. Sure. So, I mean, I think what, what we see happening, and, and I think the reason, you know, Almaty as a city is the big kind of, that's the real capital city. Way, the biggest comparison I often think of is between Washington and New York, right? Where, you know, yes, Washington is the capital, but New York is kind of the beating cultural capital and the city that everyone kind of associates with. In many ways, Almaty and Nur Sultan, it's, it's kind of a similar relationship, if you will. So Almaty is a very big commercial capital. Lots of the industrial hubs are there. The Kazakh Stock Exchange was there. You know, there's all the sort of the economics of the country really generated out of there. So it's a very important city. And it's a city that's really been controlled by individuals who are very close to the former president, President Nazarbayev, who was sort of the founder president of the country. And figures around him were very influential there, including, I think, one of his uh, sons-in-law, I think, is the mayor. So I think kind of the three key characters that are probably worth remembering or thinking about this context without going into too much detail about the many other, you know, Kazakh significant figures there are. The first is President Nursultan Nazarbayev, who is the founder and the father, in many ways, of modern Kazakhstan. And he was the man who... You know, he was the prime minister um, in Soviet times when, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart. He was the man in charge and he cultivated a very close relationship with Boris Yeltsin. Um, and actually, he was very keen to stay connected to Russia at the time. And he's been really, he, he wanted Kazakhstan to stay close because he was worried about the country sort of being stuck out on its own. Um, but after a while, he sort of adapted to it and really kind of built the country that we see today. So he's kind of the founder figure of this country, the father, and his name, Nur Sultan, has now been given to the capital city, Nur Sultan, which used to be called Astana. And he handed over power to basically one of the kind of senior figures in his administration, um, who was at the time the president of the Senate uh, within Kazakhstan, a man called uh, Kasim Jomark Tokayev. Um, who was kind of another long-standing, you know, apparatchik person in the Soviet system who actually started his career serving at the uh, Soviet embassy in Singapore, uh, served some time in China as well, kind of been very involved in the Soviet system and then went over and served as Kazakhstan's foreign minister, served as Kazakhstan's prime minister, you know, was quite a senior figure in the Nazarbayev administration. And he kind of handed over power to him in 2019. And the third important figure, I think, to remember within this context is a man called Karim Masimov who at the time of the protests was the head of the uh, uh, Security Council, which is essentially the intelligence service of Kazakhstan, the KMB. Um, And he is a man who was kind of widely seen as being, you know, the most competent administrator in the country. He served for a while as prime minister. He served as a finance minister. He was another one who was brought up in the kind of Soviet system. And in that system, he'd learned Arabic, I think, and learned Chinese. Um, He's actually of Tajik and Uyghur ethnicity. Um, which gave him a very kind of particular flavor. Uh, But it also meant that he was never really going to be likely to be able to get the top job because Kazakhstan is a country which has got, I think, over 100 
ethnicities within it, but it's the Kazakhs that are kind of ruling it. And there's a series of Kazakh tribes that kind of dominate the country and its, its economy more generally. And so, you know, the fact that Masimov was not of that ethnicity made it very difficult for him to really ever rise to the top. Can I interrupt again? Kazakh facts number two. As you say, Raf, it's a fascinating ethnic mix. And I just think it's worth, I have some statistics here, which just show us how how mixed it is. Kazakhs are the largest part of the population, nearly 60%. Then you have Russian at 25%, Ukrainians, nearly 3%, Uzbeks, nearly 3%, and then Uyghur, Tatar and German, all with significant minorities, so over 1%, as well as then, you know, it says over 100 other ethnic groups. But that's a real mix. And, And along with that, you have religious mix. You have a significant portion are Russian Orthodox, you have Catholics, and um, the majority are Muslim, although the actual, the country is essentially a a secular country. I'm just injecting that fact, and now I'm going to let you speak some more. No, I mean, look, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, the Kazakhs pride themselves in having this sort of huge multicultural mix, but I think the point I might take away from that, which is worth highlighting, is how these populations are concentrated. And the particular ones to focus on in some ways is the Russian population, which does tend to be in the north. Um, and one of the fears that Kazakhstan's always had was that, you know, the Russians might, you know, interfere with that community or use that community to claim the kind of north of the country and shred the country of its independence. A lot of the other communities are kind of concentrated around the coast, you know, around the fringes of the country. But it's really the fact that the Russians are concentrated in the north has always been the big issue in many ways. And part of the reason that, you know, Nur Sultan is where it is, is because when Nazarbayev took over, you know, he recognized that, you know, if this country was going to survive as a coherent entity, the capital, it would be better if it was not down in the south in a, in a city, which is very clearly associated with one group rather than another group. And so the idea of putting it in the middle was to help kind of stitch the country together, if you will. Can I ask a couple of questions? That one is that the the ethnic mix, which is quite interesting. I mean, I was quite struck by by the fact that the Germans there. I mean, why why are there Germans there, and what what's the historical basis for this? And secondly, I mean, you're sort of alluding to, it, of course, is but you know, what is the relationship really in with with Russia? Is it generally quite cordial but tense? Would you say, or, or, or I mean, it's, it doesn't sound like it's a Belarusian relationship. It's it's an interesting one. So, I mean, on the German part, it's a leftover from the war, frankly. Um, and it right. was, you know, when Stalin was in charge, he was moving populations around, right. uh, you know, the sort of regions. And, you know, a lot of populations got shifted over to uh, Kazakhstan. And in some cases, it was intended as a punitive measure. You know, as Suzanne pointed out earlier, this is a barren and unforgiving land in many ways. And so, you know, one of the methods which Stalin would pub- punish large populations was to shift them en masse across the country. And for example, the Chechen migration, I mean, I I don't know how many thousands of Chechens died in that journey, but it was considerable. Um, And it's remembered, you know, very, you know, with great sadness in the North Caucasus, where, you know, a huge population was shifted across as a sort of punitive measure by Stalin when they dared to sort of turn against him. So that's why you have this kind of odd mix of all the others. The Central Asian ones, it's a bit more about the fact, like the Uyghurs, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks that you have there, this is because these are ultimately, this area is made up of nomadic communities, you know, who one day were told, you are now in Kazakhstan, <laughs> you know, but they were used to kind of migrating back and forth across this space, you know, following their herds. 
Um, and so this is why you do have this kind of odd ethnic mix across the region where you have sort of substantial populations of, you know, for example, Tajiks in Uzbekistan or Uzbeks in Tajikistan or Uzbeks in, and, and Uyghurs kind of all over, well, in particular in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, you know, because these communities are very migratory across this entire region. And this is just kind of where they ended up when the borders are being drawn. So that's on, on the ethnic mix question. On the relationship with Russia, I mean, the relationship with Russia is a complicated one which is a really kind of irritating academic thing to say, isn't it? But, um, but it really is because, you know, on the one hand, uh, there is a link to Russia that they can't deny. I mean, as I said, all three of the senior figures who are quite key to the kind of discussion around the protests, President Nazarbayev, President Tokayev, and, you know, former prime minister and former KMB chief, uh, Masimov, were all of the Soviet system. <laughs> they all speak Russian. <laughs> they all operate in Russian. This is kind of their lingua franca, and they all have close relationships with Russia, economically, culturally, and the whole country does. But I think, you know, what was interesting about Kazakhstan is that when it started off, I think there was an eagerness, you know, when we think back to the sort of end of the Soviet Union, I think if you look at Central Eastern Europe, there was kind of an eagerness to get away from Russia. You know, they were quite happy to break away and shed the Soviet yoke and move towards Europe and join NATO and all these other things which cause issues now. On the Central Asian side, they didn't really want to, <laughs> you know, and, and President Nazarbayev was quite keen to stay part of Russia. And he was quite worried about, you know, creating this country. And there was a great eagerness to try to stay connected. And in fact, if you look at something like the Eurasian Economic Union, which is a kind of significant economic entity, President Nazarbayev was the one who first suggested it in 1994 as a way of trying to stay connected to the Russian economy. Now, as time has gone on, Kazakhstan has developed a greater sense of kind of independence. It's something that's been very fostered by the government. And a sense of Kazakhness has been developed. And in recent years, it's got even further than that, to the point where they're trying to grow this kind of sense of Kazakh nationalism to the detriment, in some ways, of the relation with Russia. So there's been a great emphasis on trying to get people to speak Kazakh rather than Russian. You know, there was a moment, I remember, a few years ago when they started to get foreign embassies to submit their, you know, requests in Kazakh, which caused a huge problem to all the foreign embassies, because of course there's, you know, not that many translators who can do Kazakh to, I don't know, Italian, right? Um, and so they were struggling around for a while to do that, but it became a requirement, you know, and then the government tried to move away from using Cyrillic text everywhere. And there's a great push to try to shed Russia. But at the same time, you know, the big economic relationship is still Russia and the big strategic relationship is still Russia. If you look at weapons sales, it's still Russia, where they get a lot of their arms from. And if you look, for example, at what we've seen happen, you know, when, when Afghanistan fell apart, you know, it was the Russians who rushed arms sales and started to do joint training exercises with everybody, including the Kazakh. Even now, you know, and, and in some ways, this brings us to the protests. When President Takaya suddenly lost faith that his security forces were actually defend him and help put the country back together, it was Russia he turned to. <laughs> and President Putin to deploy the CSTO and deploy Russian forces to help stabilize the situation in the country. So it's kind of a, a love-hate relationship, if you will. But I think if you want to look at this in kind of comparative terms, I think the interesting thing is there were some surveys that have been done relatively recently, uh, which looked at what the Kazakh public thinks of the other great powers. And invariably, you'll see, you know, of course, they think the Kazakhs are the best in the world. Russia comes pretty high. And then China and the United States come pretty low below that, you know, but it's always Russia that kind of comes first. And Russia still does have that kind of strong connection. We haven't really described yet what exactly happened after the protest between the 3rd of January and the 8th of January. You started off with this, the protest in the West. It spread to Almaty. And then, as you've just said, somewhere very quickly... 
President Tokayev asked for the help of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is the kind of Russian version of NATO, a defensive alliance, which sent troops pretty much immediately. And that all looks a little bit odd. It's not often that one country calls in a collective defensive alliance to fire on its own people. What do you think happened in those five days? So I think to put a touch of context around that, the interesting thing about CSTO deploying in this way is that there have been a number of other instances where other members of the CSTO, Kyrgyzstan or Armenia, have had very similar internal problems. And they requested the CSTO to come and it didn't come. It said, no, we don't, this is not what we sort of do. So it's, it, that's, a, that's why it was so significant that the CSTO came in, not only because of sort of Russian involvement, but also because this is an organization which really for its entire existence hasn't really done anything, <laughs> even though it's been called on by its members to do something. And yet here it suddenly did. So that was a sort of significant moment. But I think what happened in between is that once these sort of organic protests seem to get hijacked by something, and we don't entirely know what, but what seemed to be a relatively pacific protest suddenly took a very violent twist. And we saw this most sharply articulated in Almaty, where you saw mobs starting to attack buildings, official buildings, burning stuff down, you know, looting took place on a large scale. But interestingly, in some places were looted and some places were not, which is, you know, I heard from some contacts on the ground, they said, I was curious, this mall got hit, but that one did not, which makes you wonder a bit about the levels of organization. So there was a sort of protesting that started to take a violent edge. And we saw a lot more aggression. And we saw the biggest thing was that we saw the security forces didn't seem to respond, actually. And in some cases, we saw the police were actually saying, no, we're with the protesters. Um, but we saw that the general sort of security apparatus that you would expect to lock in to do something seemed to stand back. And I think one of the questions, and this is one of the elements that I think led to why President Tokayev called on the CSTO in particular, was that the leaders of these security organizations were individuals like former prime minister and current, you know, former KMB chief, uh, intelligence chief, Masimov, were affiliated with President Nazarbayev and his clique of people. And so his nephew, who's the deputy to Mr. Masimov, all of these figures were in charge of security forces. They didn't do anything that seemed to stand by while these protests took place. And so the answer seems to be that at this point, President Tokayev recognized that he couldn't count on his own forces because it seemed as though some of the police were going over to the protesters. And on the other side, the sort of heavy duty security who would really call upon in, in extremists didn't seem to be responding. There was this need to get some sort of external pull and particularly Russia and the CSDO to come in and do it. And I think the other element I'll, I'll throw in here is that one of the interesting things that come out as the narratives around these protests have come out from the government subsequently is they talk a lot about foreign forces dark foreign forces coming in and terrorists coming in and even alluding to people coming from Afghanistan without really presenting any evidence this is actually has taken place. And one of the reasons that's been increasingly articulated around why they did this is that the CSTO as an organization is not supposed to interfere or get involved when countries are having internal squabbles. But they do interfere when they're getting invaded by others. And so the narrative that seems to be presented is that, you know, well, the country was under attack by some terrorist extremist force from outside, 20,000 people, the government says, that kind of attacked our major cities, and this needed a response, which is why the CSTO had then a justification to be uh, deployed. But I think in reality, what this masked was the fact that you were having this internal power struggle between President Tokayev, who was clearly seeing that the Nazarbayev clan seemed to be trying to edge him away or do something to undermine his power and his influence, and he needed to strengthen himself. 
And this is also strengthened, this, this narrative is strengthened by the fact that what we've seen afterwards is the gradual defenestration of an ever-increasing number of people close to former President Nazarbayev, starting with uh, Mr. Masimov, who's been, you know, unceremoniously swept aside and accused of high treason and potentially even being involved in some sort of coup. But we've seen actually this is slowly now filtered out to a number of other people as well around former President Nazarbayev, you know, who are being uh, suddenly brought under investigation or, you know, parts of their financial empires are being sort of pulled away from them. So we've seen a real attack. And this, again, strengthens this narrative that in reality, what we saw was a kind of organic protest, which then seems to have slipped into this power struggle. Um, but the thing we don't know is what was the trigger for the shift from one to the other? And it's difficult not to be drawn into conspiracy theories at a time like this, because we know... Suzanne, this is an area which loves conspiracy theories. I mean, you, I, I'm sure you've been around the, this region. They, they love a good conspiracy theory there. <laughs> but it's so odd, isn't it? Because I was watching as it happened, and I thought what we appear to have is a defensive coup by the incumbent president who's assuming control of all organs of state, who's being backed unequivocally and very quickly by a Russian-led collective defensive organisation. So it seems to me, I mean, the, the, I've got so many questions um, that, that you probably can't answer, but if it took the Russians three days to decide which side to support... It is inconceivable to me that there weren't conversations in advance. And the question is what Tokayev is offering the Russians that Nazarbayev and Masimov weren't, given that there has clearly been a decision that they're going to back the current guy rather than the long-standing guy. I think what we have to look at here is the fact that you did see within the protests a focus of anger against President Nazarbayev. You know, the inequality that you see in the country, the sense that there is an elite, I think it's, I can't remember, I think one of the consultancies, KPMG maybe did a survey at one point and they calculated that roughly 165 individuals in Kazakhstan controlled, you know, more than 50% of the national economy. This kind of accumulation was very associated with President Nazarbayev and his immediate family, quite frankly. And you saw protests where they were pulling down statues of him, um, there was shouting about old man out. So there's a real focus of him as the figure of hatred. And I think from a Russian perspective, I think the calculation was probably, we can't have instability in Kazakhstan. <laughs> we need to have a stable Kazakhstan. And I think reading the runes, they would have said, yes, you know, President Nazarbayev is clearly a very significant figure and very important. But it seems clear to us that, you know, the wind is blowing against him. <laughs> The other guy has a, a chance and has a narrative that he can sell, which seems more credible to us. And we should support that because he is the kind of sitting government. In many ways, if we had seen the Nazarbayev clan, let's say, unseat uh, President uh, Tokayev, we would have had a change of government, you know, and this would have been a revolution of sorts. And that's exactly the sort of thing Russia doesn't want to see happening. It wants stability. It wants its neighbors to be the same people in power who have been in power before. And that is kind of what they want proceeding forward. So I think from Russia, the calculation was quite simple. One, we can't have an unstable Kazakhstan. And two, what is going to demonstrate stability? And the obvious thing is keep the current guy in charge, support him. And frankly, I think the Russians in many ways have played this one very well in the sense that they supported the incumbent, kept him in power with a relatively limited application of force. And it looks like they're leaving as well. You know, I think we saw American Secretary of State Blinken saying, well, Russians come, they never leave. 
I'm not sure that's true. I think the Russians seem to actually be pulling back. And frankly, I think that's the most sensible thing from their perspective, because what would happen if they'd stayed with some of the anti-Russian rhetoric and narrative, which exists in, in Kazakhstan, would have started to pick up. And it would really start to undermine President Tokayev, who, you know, was part of a government that was selling this idea of we're a strong country. But yet the first signal of trouble, they have to call on big daddy Russia to come and save the day. That doesn't project a sense of strength, it projects weakness. And so that's exactly not what they want. So I think the fact that Russia has responded very quickly, it sent its people in, stabilized the situation, and then left again. I think this is going to play very well uh, in Moscow, frankly, and actually, I think in, in parts of Kazakhstan as well. Can I just ask you, you know, you said something about the reason they were allowed or, or they were invited in was because, I mean, it's a defensive pact. And, you know, if the country's, you know, they, they're not meant to interfere in uh, domestic politics, but they can if there's an outside threat. Were they arguing that this was sort of infiltration or were they arguing this was actually a physical, you know, there were actually foreigners in the country causing trouble in the sense that, you know, were, were they worried that this was like a velvet revolution, that people had been ideologically, I suppose, you know, convinced to go one way? Or do they actually think there were foreign forces involved? There seems to be three broad forces that different groups have pointed to at various moments. The first one is the idea of, uh, quite literally, foreign extremist terrorists coming in and allusions to these people being linked to Afghanistan in some way. Um, you know, I don't think there's ever been 20,000 Kazakh foreign fighters in, 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 in Afghanistan. I think there's maybe been a, a few hundred, maybe at most, but, you know, it's certainly not in these numbers and certainly not recently either, nor mobilized in any sort of the, the, in the ways that they were suggesting. And, um, so, so that's one group. The second group, which is alluded to, is what they describe as color revolutions. Um, and color revolutions is usually code for Western NGOs, stuff like George Soros's Open Society Foundations, you know, American-supported NGOs that are basically trying to spread democracy and cause chaos in this part of the world. This would be a way of linking what's happening in Kazakhstan, the instability there, to earlier instability we've seen in Ukraine in 2004, um, the change of government we saw in Georgia in 2005, a protest that we've seen repeatedly in Kyrgyzstan around election times. And, you know, even the Arab Spring is seen in this kind of light, this idea of, you know, popular movements overthrowing the government and those popular movements being organized by Western-backed NGOs. So that's the second one. And then the third one is, you know, there are some individuals, a particular individual called Mukhtar Blyazov, who's a former billionaire, former individual who's very close to the regime in Kazakhstan, who fell out of favor and is now hiding out in Europe, where he spends a lot of money and, you know, tries to mobilize forces against President uh, Nazarbayev and President Tokayev. He's the sort of third external force, which is alluded to. But I think for the purposes of the kind of CSTO deployment, the one that they seem to have been foregrounding is this idea of some sort of extremist terrorist force being mobilized and coming in to overthrow them, even though very, very little evidence, if any evidence, has really been presented that this was the case. No, and I think we would have seen, for example, some claims by a terrorist force if that was actually something that they were thinking. Ralph, I just wanted to ask now about China, because as, as you've mentioned, one of the things about Masimov that was so interesting was his ability to look both ways, to speak Chinese and Russian, and to develop relations with both countries such that realistically they thought we're Kazakhstan, we're in the middle of the two superpowers in this area, and we have to get on with both of them. And we do that by cultivating a sense of reliable neutrality. And I think if we remember back to the Syrian conflict, which is, of course, still going on, 
they set up in 2015 the Astana process, deliberately trying to position Kazakhstan as the Switzerland of Asia, the place where you could come. So you had the Turks and the Iranians and the Russians and, and various representatives of different Syrian factions all talking in Astana because it was a safe space and neutral space. At the same time, obviously, Kazakhstan is is a part of the new Silk Road, Chinese reordering of the world. So what does this protest and then the sort of what appears to be the cementing of Russian influence over the current president, what does that mean for China? Sure. So, I mean, I think, look, starting off, I'd say the Kazakhs were always very interesting in the Central Asian context because they advanced this foreign policy concept of what they called a multi-vector foreign policy, which is essentially we sit in between, we talk to everyone, we have relationships with everyone, and it's on our terms, and we kind of balance. And this is always the narrative that they sold. And it wasn't just between Russia and China, it was also with the West. You know, they saw the West and, you know, UK in particular, actually, is very interesting connection history with Kazakhstan. If you look at a lot of the major companies there, a lot of them are actually you know, listed on the London Stock Exchange. A lot of them have a lot of senior British people working within them. And there's a very long history of kind of a connectivity between the two. And, you know, the Nazarbayev family owns all sorts of properties around London in quite you know, prominent places. So there is a kind of strong connection with the UK. And that's a whole other discussion I guess we can go to. But, but I think that the point was the Kazakhs love this idea of multi-vector foreign policy, you know, and they always used to bang on about this, you know, and they always, they still do. The fact that they had money, helped, frankly. The fact that they had resources meant that they could kind of paint this picture better than others. And for example, the Astana process, as you mentioned, uh, around Syria, you know, this was them trying to show our relevance as a kind of neutral place, but they could also afford to pay for this whole thing. You know what I mean? So they, a lot of the other countries in the region would love to do this, but they just don't have the resources. So, you know, the Kazakhs always did have this narrative that they would sell. And I think what's interesting and going to be really interesting to observe going forwards is how much they're able to continue to maintain this narrative because it really is a kind of a credo of Kazakh foreign policy that we are balancers, we are multi-vector. And in a way, what we've just seen happen is really disbalanced that. But what I would say is that I'm not sure it's disbalanced it between Russia and China because the presumption is that the two are competing in some way in Kazakhstan. And I'm just not sure that they are because at the end of the day, I think that the Chinese were basically not unhappy that the Russians came in and sort of helped stabilize the situation. I mean, they didn't want to do that, you know. <laughs> they don't want the PLA to go in. God knows. God knows where that's going to end up, you know. But they've got a lot of economic interest in this country. They don't want it to go south. They need it to be stable. The last thing they want is a giant, you know, collapsed Kazakhstan on their border and all the chaos that that might bring with it, you know. When we were talking before about ethnic communities, you know, there's, I think, a million ethnic Kazakhs that live in China, you know, so there's a substantial flow connection with the country. And so from China's perspective, frankly, the Russians sending their soldiers in, great. Someone else is dealing with this problem. It's not us, you know, and at the end of the day, so what? They know that the Kazakhs are always going to be close to the Russians to some degree. That's fine. It's kind of priced in from them. What are the Kazakhs going to do? Sell more of their gas and oil to the Russians? No. I mean, the market is China. <laughs> you know, China's the big consumer. China's the one that they all want to connect with. It's the one that the Russians want to connect with as well. So the kind of economic geography of the region is pulled towards China full stop. And that's the part that China really cares about. On the stability side, they care about that as well. But if the Russians are going to deliver that, ultimately, the Russians' vision of stability is not dissimilar to the Chinese one. And so they're fine with that. And the final piece of this is the part that the Chinese are really worried about is, you know, basically 
Uyghur dissidents. They've always worried about this, you know, Uyghur dissidents using Central Asia as a base from which to foment trouble in, in China. This is something you can go back and look at in 1994, then Premier Li Peng did a famous tour of the region and he visited all of the Central Asian capitals except for Dushanbe in Tajikistan, which at the time was racked by civil war. And he also visited Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And this was kind of an opening of China's relations with the region. And what's interesting is that every stop he talked about Silk Roads, which sounds very familiar. And he talked about worrying about extremist groups and particularly Uyghurs. And so the Chinese have always had this neuralgic fixation. But the point I would make here is that the region's always been happy to work with the Chinese on this problem. And I think whoever ultimately would come to power in Kazakhstan would still be happy to work with the Chinese on that concern. So in some ways, the disbalance is not between Russia and China. Russia developing a, maybe a stronger connection. It's something the Russians, the Chinese expect, and they're fine with it as long as their trade can continue. They will still find that the Kazakhs will continue to try to engage with them because what else are the Kazakhs going to do? I think the curious one is the West because you know there's a lot of Western investment in Kazakhstan. Western oil majors are very heavily invested there. You know, there's a very famous project uh, in the Caspian called Kashagan, um, which is, you know, I think one of the world's biggest oil projects going on for years. Billions of dollars have been spent there. It's run by ENI, uh, the Italian oil major, but it's got a consortium that consists of American and British and and Chinese uh, uh, partners, companies like KPMG, um, all sorts of Western companies are very heavily invested there. So there's a very heavy Western economic footprint. But the political influence side of that is I think the part that's going to be quite difficult to see playing out going forwards. Because I think going forwards, you are going to see the region more willing to sort of follow Russian lines in particular. And Russian and Chinese lines are increasingly close together. And so this idea of Kazakhstan being the balancer between all three, I think they will continue to try. But I think what they'll find is harder to maintain the kind of Western side of that stand. Uh, I think the Chinese and the Russian one are probably going to be able to continue on. But I think the Western side is the one that's going to become more complicated, partially because I think companies will start to think, can we still continue to do business here? What risks have we not factored in before? Do we do I mean, the energy companies will continue, but some of the other investors and companies that you saw, they will, I think, start to factor in a different question. And I think from a governmental perspective, it will become increasingly hard, I think, for Western governments to have the same levels of influence because I think Moscow will frankly be pressuring them not to. I've got one final question, but before I ask that, Ali, do you want... Well, I was just going to... Uh, I mean, yeah, we uh, we could clearly go on, but uh, unfortunately it's getting quite late <laughs> in Singapore. Uh, what you've just been describing as a China that's quite willing to let the Russians, you know, basically manage the situation. So, you know, what I'd like you to do in a sense is maybe to unpack that phrase in inverted empire. I mean, what, what do you mean by it, really? Sure. I mean, the, uh, the concept of inverted empire is basically built around the idea that if you look at Central Asia and the five stands countries and increasing Afghanistan as well, you know, China is increasingly becoming the most consequential actor on the ground in terms of the economy, in terms of, you know, political connections, in terms of security connections a little bit as well, in fact. You know, you can increasingly see that. And so China's becoming an increasingly significant player in this part of the world. But it's happening in a way that I think China isn't totally considering what the ramifications and consequences of that are, which is that if you become the kind of the big daddy, you know, if you become the big economic partner of the region, there are things that go with that. Your interests start to change and your influence starts to change. Your mere presence is changing things on the ground. And so, you know, the book was based on, you know, traveling around the region a lot, talking to a lot of people there. And 
what I noticed was that you could see that stuff that was happening in China, which when I went to talk to Chinese people, they're like, who cares? Central Asia, yeah, yeah, it's important, but it's over there. You know, the relation, economic relationships, when you look at it, sort of wider Chinese economic relationships, there's a drop in the ocean. You know, it's important because of Xinjiang, but, you know, that's kind of one region of China. You know, it's just not seen in the same way. And yet I could see going forwards that China is going to be the most significant player in this part of the world. But it's happening in a way that China, I don't think, is thinking through what the consequences of that are. And the consequences are a region which is fractured and a region where we do see, you know, governments that, you know, struggle with internal stability sometimes, um, that have hate, difficult relationships with each other. Um, and they're not going to have a kind of a, a big outside supervisor or superpower, if you will, that is interested in trying to help them fix these problems anymore. You know, and so that, I think, is the interesting change that's going to happen in the region, which you increasingly China being the significant player. The region saying, well, you know, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan is two good examples. These are two countries that have a constant border spats, and no one really tries to fix them. I mean, the Russians sometimes say something, but really it's the Chinese that are an important economic player to both of these. And if these two fall out, it's their interests which are really going to get impacted. But China's not really going to try to do it. They'll say, well, you know, you work it out, and then we'll see what happens. But on the ground, that means that the problem doesn't get fixed. And so I think what, what I was trying to say with the inverted empire idea was the fact that we are seeing China become this incredibly significant power in this part of the world, but without any sense of what that really means beyond the concerns of you know how this basically Beijing is really important and Beijing is continuing to be important. So, but actually trying to do stuff, fix stuff on the ground, you know. And the danger here is, of course, I sound like a kind of Western you know interventionist who says, oh, you know, us Westerners have got the right system. We need to impose on everyone else, so on and so forth. But I think the point is that there are lots of problems in the world. And unless someone else comes along and tries to help you fix it, they don't get fixed. And these, facts, these problems can get worse. And I think this is the kind of longer term consequence I can see playing out on the ground. Um, and I think Afghanistan is going to be a really interesting case study of it. So that was the whole idea of the kind of inverted empire, this idea that China is becoming the most consequential power without sort of following up on what... That without means. trying too hard. Yeah, without, without trying too hard, without looking at what it really means and what China is going to have to do. It's a bit, <laughs> uh, it's a bit like Seeley's comment, isn't it? Yeah. Having acquired an empire in the yeah, there you go. fit of an absence of mind. <laughs> so I think we need to wrap up. My final question was, is Kazakhstan stable now? Because we might have the, the incumbent president back in charge, the Russian troops have left, but Masimov is, as far as I'm aware, still in prison. Nazarbayev has, has made a video recording <laughs> which, in which he says, everything is fine here now. There clearly has been some sort of compromise. Is that is that enough, or is there going to be further agitation? I think that the real tell is going to be if President Takayev can deal with the underlying problems that I think started the organic protests in the first place. I think the power struggle has been resolved, um, in the sense that we've seen the Nazarbayev faction, if you will, uh, kind of sidelined. Um, you've seen a number of them hand over resources. I think you're going to see a number of them cut deals to kind of not lose everything. But I think basically that is kind of done. Um, so I think that that has happened. But then I think going forwards, the real question is, is President Takayev going to be able to deal with the real economic problems that exist in the country and the real inequalities and the anger that exists around uh, Kazakhstan about the fact that, you know, you're living in a country which is on paper incredibly wealthy. But when you go out to some of the cities, some of the smaller villages, they just don't see this kind of wealth and this benefit. And, you know, they, this doesn't compute, you know, and I think that is really 
the, the big issue. If President Takayev can fix those problems and be seen to be doing it and really make progress in that direction, then I think you could see a stable situation going forward. If, on the other hand, we basically see the same kind of thing go on, then I think you could, frankly, see problems bubbling up again. I think, you know, the one thing to say uh, about Kazakhstan as we started at the beginning was saying how wide, big and scattered out it is. And that does start to make it quite hard to mobilize something. But I think what's telling about this was the fact that the organic protest that we saw at the beginning really did show up in lots of different places at the same time, or seemed to follow after each other quite quickly. And that says to me, there's a pretty widespread discontent. And that is something that he needs to deal with. And if he doesn't, then I think you could see these troubles uh, bubbling over again at some point. But uh, I think in terms of the power struggle, for me, it feels like it's sort of been resolved. Okay, thank you, Raf, for a masterful explanation of what's going on in Kazakhstan. I feel that it's a little bit, watch this space. We seem to have reached a natural pause in the first phase, but with the kind of Russian support for a strong president at the moment, that's a temporary solution in a way. So... So we might have I you think back. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely be coming back, Raf. I mean, and that was brilliant. I mean, thank you very much. I think there's a lot more is going to be happening I in think this so. fascinating Look, meeting. this is, you know, everyone should read their Mackinder. As Mackinder <laughs> yeah, said, absolutely. he who controls the Eurasian heartland controls the world island and therefore controls the world, right? So I think that is, uh, this is a significant part of the world. Thank you very much.